Exodus 21. And uh, at first glance, when you're looking through these two chapters, you're like, oh my goodness, what are they talking about here? Um, it starts to get, this is kind of the verses that people like to cherry pick and say, see, the Bible's completely irrelevant. And they like to take verses out of context from these two chapters or three chapters, um, which if you know anything about anything, it, you can make any text fit your point if you take a random sentence out of the middle of a context. So you could, you know, take something that I say and edit it and make it sound like I said something that I didn't say. And that's kind of what, as we look around at our culture, people are doing a lot more of. And I kind of found it interesting, like, when I first started studying for this, I was like, well, this doesn't seem, how is this relevant to us now? And then as the more I read and the more I prepared, um, I feel like it's exactly what we're looking at right now, which is why I kind of titled it Rulings in God's Supreme Court um, is what the two chapters we're going to look at. Because essentially what's happening here, if you remember in Exodus 18, where Jethro gave Moses the advice of you can't bring all these, you can't have all these cases coming before you and making judgments. You're one guy. You need to you know, build a little government here about having, you know, the, the elders take the, the little disputes and figure those out, and then you take the really serious ones when you don't know what to do, take them before God, and he'll tell you what to do. And a lot of scholars believe that these chapters following the Ten Commandments are actually God's responses to cases that Moses brought before him. That's why they're so specific uh, in nature when we look at them. Um, but what's what I find really interesting is that it's essentially God is, is like umpire or referee, and, and he's given his playbook, which is the Ten Commandments, and now we see him elaborating. And, and you know, I forget how many laws, it's like 623 or something like that, or when you actually get down to the you shall not do this, or if you do this, then this happens. Um, we're not going to look at all of them tonight, but we're going to look at a lot of them. So bear with me as we read. But it's important to remember when we look at the law of God, what was the intention of giving the law? The intention of these laws was always to deter people from doing things that would prevent them from fully enjoying all that God had for them. So when God says, don't do this, it's because God knows, just like a parent, a loving parent, if you do this, you will miss out on something that I have for you. That's better. You might have to wait for something But if you go and take this thing for yourselves before I give it to you, the promised land, for instance, uh, if you do these things outside of my will, you are going to be missing out. As far as God's concerned, you know, he has his plan, but he's, he's directing people, don't do this. And when we look at these harsh judgments and we see, if you do this, you're going to die. We have to remember that God didn't want people to do those things. That's why the judgment was so stern. Does that make sense? Like, it seems kind of elementary, but we have to remember that, because I think sometimes when we read the laws, we say, God just can't wait for somebody to break these so he can come smiting them with lightning bolts. But the intention of the law was, please don't do these things. Please. You know, it was God crying out, essentially, from the Mount of Sinai, saying, you are in bondage. If you recall, how did they get into this bondage? They ended up following and ending up in Egypt, and then Egypt took over and all this stuff. And God knew even here that if the, if the people of Israel did not obey his laws, they would end up in bondage again, which is exactly what happened. So when God says, don't do these things, he's saying, for your own good. And that's important that we realize that when we read these things, because I think sometimes we start to get like, whoa, God, this is like, 
an impossible list to follow. How are we supposed to do all these things? And the good thing is, is that it says in the New Testament, Jesus came and fulfilled the law. You know, and, and what I, I appreciate about Jesus, and there's many things, obviously, um, is that he says, I didn't come, don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. So sometimes Christians go a little too far in saying, who cares about the law? Well, God does. He really does. Now, the law is not how we earn favor with God anymore, and that's not how we are pleasing to God anymore, but the law in itself was created by God, so therefore it is good. But it's not good enough, and it wasn't it was never intended to get us to God. It was always to point us to the law fulfiller, Jesus Christ. So that's my little preparatory statement. So let's jump in. We'll get as far as we can. I'm not going to say that we'll complete both chapters tonight, but we'll see what happens. Um, Verse 1, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. So right away in the first verse, the, uh, the 21st century American in us goes, <gasps> what do you mean when you buy a Hebrew slave? That sounds awful. See, the Bible endorses slavery, which is what everybody says. And we've heard, I've heard that argument so much recently because of people like to take one thing and then say, well, because it says this, then everything else is not relevant. But what we don't understand, and thankfully I got just a little plug for this book that I've been kind of taking pictures of and showing all over Facebook. This book is unbelievable. So it's called, Is God a Moral Monster? Making Sense of the Old Testament God. And it basically takes all of atheists and the modern uh, revisionists' ideas about how the Bible is not relevant because it talks about slavery and just basically sets it in its context and shows you what God you know, is saying when he's talking about slavery. And it's really, it's really cool. It's been really eye-opening as I read through it because it addresses all of those big uh, things like what's with selling these girls to be brides and all this stuff. And it dives right in. It's unabashed, unabashedly tackling all these big critiques that the Bible often has. So, and the reason I bring that up is because that's what we're looking at for the next two weeks. So, um, you can find it online or whatever, but there's, there's other books too that you could read. But it's really important, I think, for us to get a full scope when we're studying the scriptures. Um, devotionals are really awesome, and I highly recommend that you go through a devotional. Um, but devotionals oftentimes, at least for me, they don't, they don't prepare me for when we face times like we are in right now. Uh, as far as, actually, okay, now we're at the rubber meets the road where people are calling me a bigot or this or that because of what I believe. So how do I actually dissect what I believe so that I can say it in love and not drive people away? You know what I mean? Because this is important. This is what we're at. This is where we are in society right now. So it's just, it's been very important um, for me at least because I'm kind of a... Uh, a junkie when it comes to these heavy topic books because I like to, I think I like to lose sleep at night because I lay awake and think about these books and I'm like, oh my gosh, like I, right before this book, I wrote, I read a book completely unaware of what was about to happen called What the Bible Really Teaches About Homosexuality. That's what the book's called. That's a big long title. Um, but I'm glad that I read it because I think it was like the day that I finished reading it, the Supreme Court came down with their ruling, which I didn't even know that it was up it was time to do that. So all that to say, I think it's very important that we, we, do, we study the Word of God, and when necessary, we utilize um, 
the tools that God has uh, gifted other people to create. Does that make sense? Uh, he's gifted, you know, minds. I think sometimes we think that the secular world has all the real minds, and then we're, you know, we read our little devotional book and it's nice and happy, but it's like there are geniuses that are Bible scholars that hold a high view of the Scripture, and any argument that someone else has, the Bible proves itself out, and it, it's just really interesting. So, so I apologize if I'm kind of giving you a little political speech here, but I just find it, it helps me, and I think especially now more than ever, we need to be equipped, uh, especially when we're looking at these things, because it's, it's challenging. So what does he mean when he says, you, when you buy a Hebrew slave? Um, there were four ways in this society that you could end up a slave, especially in Israel. One was you were extremely poor, and you basically sold your services uh, to become indebted to somebody else and become their slave. Now, when we say the word slave, we all automatically think of um, the slave trade and those things. And as we look at this chapter, we'll see that that type of behavior is condemned, which most people are shocked to find because they hear the word slavery and they immediately think of the Civil War and Abraham Lincoln and he set the slaves free. And yes, that's great. The Emancipation, Emancipation Proclamation, is that what it was? Um, but we'll see. The type of slavery that was going on was different than what this slavery is describing here. This is talking about, essentially, uh, it was a way that God was making it so that people who were poor could be provided for in these times either of famine or poverty. They would indebt themselves. They would get food, shelter, things that they couldn't have on their own. And he even puts in a provision that they could only be a slave for six years. On the seventh year, regardless of how much money they owed, regardless of anything, they could actually walk away free in the seventh year. And the, the person who owned the slave or was the master couldn't do anything about it, which is way different than most of the societies at this time. And it's really important that we recognize that. There were three other ways that you could become a slave. One was um, your father, and this is kind of interesting, your father could sell you to somebody else to work for them. Maybe your fa- you know, the debt was the family's and the father could not do any service because he was incapacitated or whatever. And he'd say, okay, my son's going to go mow your lawn for you. You know, to kind of put it in perspective, you know, your parents, when you were a kid, probably offered your services to other people without your permission. Like, yeah, my son's going to go and feed your cats while you're away. You know, obviously that's a, stri- that's not, that's a little satirical, but um, it was more along those lines than thinking like, hey, see you, son, I just got some money for you and you're out of here. It wasn't necessarily that type of thing as we picture it. Um, another thing was you would actually, if you owed a debt, um, you, you, if you couldn't repay that debt, you basically said, I'll work it off. I'll work off my debt, which doesn't seem that weird and barbaric because we do that now. Oftentimes, you're like, uh, I, hey, you didn't pay me back that 100 bucks you borrowed. Okay, well, I'll cook you dinner for five nights. Does that work? Or I'll do your laundry for, you know, you made bets like that in college. Like, if you don't do this, then I'll do your laundry for a week or whatever, you know, those types of things. So when we, as we go through Exodus, you're going to see it actually says, if you kidnap somebody, which basically means you take somebody against their will and sell them as a slave, that you will be punished. Which is, the sla- when we talk about slavery now, that's kind of what we picture, right? That's how I think of it. When I think of slavery, I think of against your will, you are being taken as a slave. 
Okay, so what he's talking about here with, as far as Hebrew slaves are concerned is they are actually offering themselves to be bought. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's move on. Um, if he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. And you're like, oh, that's kind of manipulative. Well, the fact that God is saying it here basically lets the guy know, hey, if your master is offering you a wife, chances are, if you love that wife, you're going to be indebted to this master for the rest of your life. It wasn't like he was forcing this guy to get married. You know what I mean? So we have to put it in context here. uh, And that's one of the reasons why God is outlining these things, so that people would know what to expect. And it's important that we remember that. Um, Verse 5, But if the slave plainly says, I love my master my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. This is really cool. Uh, If you would turn to Deuteronomy 6, um, I find this really interesting. I'm I'm sorry, not Deuteronomy 6. Yes, Deuteronomy 6. <clears throat> it's, a, it's a lot of verses, so I, don't ha- I didn't put them up because um, it would have been like seven slides. But if you just bear with me, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1. This is talking about the law, okay? Like, this is why it was important that God put this law in place. And you will recognize some of these verses as we read them, no doubt. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules. Um, the word rules there could also be translated just decrees that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. And this is Moses speaking. And uh, as we go on, we'll see a lot of laws in the book of Exodus are reiterated in Deuteronomy and elaborated on in Deuteronomy. So if there's ever anything in Exodus that you don't understand or it seems like really out of nowhere that they make this law, thankfully, when Moses restates the law, which I think Deuteronomy actually means like double law or something like that to to give you the idea of the the law being said a second time, he fills in the blanks oftentimes than what we see in Exodus. So uh, verse, sorry, still verse one, that the Lord has commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God. So this, he's giving you the reasons as to why God gave these rules. Um, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you. See, it has to do with God wanting our well-being, which is why he says, don't do that, because I know that if you do that, things will not go well for you. That seems pretty loving of God. It doesn't seem like a harsh judgmental God, in my opinion. I don't know. Maybe I'm closed-minded. Where did I leave off? That you may multiply greatly. So God is saying, if you obey and you do the things that I tell you to do, You'll be multiplied greatly. Things will be prosperous for you. Things will go well with you. That's kind of left out sometimes when we talk about the law of God. As the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And then this is the part that you'll recognize. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. See, love wins. It's about love, right? When we love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our might, 
we don't have to worry about what the laws say because we will automatically be acting in a way that would honor God. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, which I think is a really cool idea. We'll see that uh, as we talk about in a little later. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The problem is, is that the Israelites started to look at the rituals as though that was what was earning them favor, as opposed to what God was trying to say was, remember the truth of what I've done for you. You see the difference there? They, they put their faith in the act of putting those things on their, their, on their forehead and on their doorpost, and that was what earned them favor. Instead of the reason God said put those things there, it was so that they would never forget what God had done for them. They forgot what God did for them, but they thought they were fine because they were doing these rituals, and that's where they got into trouble. So if we turn back, um, actually move forward to uh, Deuteronomy 15, because we talked about this slave that's going to be staying forever. And uh, we talked about this a little while ago when I spoke. Uh, This was a long time ago, actually, uh, when we did the Unchained Gospel series. And we talked about the idea of being a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness or a slave of Christ. What does it mean? And we see it throughout the New Testament. I'm a bond slave of Jesus. You know, you would think that they would step up and say, I'm a child of God, or I'm the, you know, James says, he doesn't say I'm the brother of Jesus, and Jude doesn't say I'm the brother of Jesus. They say, I am the bond slave of of Jesus Christ. So it's interesting that we see this over and over. So if you, uh, Deuteronomy 15, verse 12, it says, and this is kind of the same information, but again, it's elaborated on. So if you bear with me, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman is sold to you, he shall serve you six years And in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. But check this out. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You notice when we talk about slavery in the Bible, this is often not mentioned. Is that not only were they set free in the seventh year, but the master was commanded... It was law that he give the slave liberally of his own possessions. Wait a minute. I thought he was paying back the master. Why is the master now indebting himself to the slave? It's an interesting concept. It says, as the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you, and your household, since he is well off with you. So interesting, the slave is actually better off staying in the servitude of the master. That's kind of an interesting concept, because we always say slavery is this awful thing. But we know, as Christians, that we're called to be slaves of Christ. And, And Paul talks about it often, about being chained, essentially, to our master. And Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. He's either going to love the one, or he's going to hate the other. It doesn't work that way. So we either chain ourselves, which we, don't, we think we're free when we're living in the world and when we're in sin and we're comfortable. We think we're free. But really, what we don't realize is that we're completely in bondage. But when we come under Christ, and then all of a sudden we start to feel the Holy Spirit challenging us, and we read the Word of God, and it says, put off this stuff. We go, oh, that hurts. I don't like that. But what we don't understand is sometimes God is cleaning house. 
He's purging all that filth and all that awful stuff that we've lived our lives accustomed to, and that's painful sometimes, you know? If, if you have a splinter, after a while, you kind of forget about it, you know, before it really gets infected. But then when you're like, I got to get this out, then you got to dig the thing out, and it's really painful, right? You know, after a while, sometimes you can kind of get used to the feeling, and then it gets infected. That's kind of what sin is like. Like, after a while, you're okay with it. And then, all of a sudden, when God starts to do his work, it gets, it gets painful. But, as we're reminded, is that it's actually better to be a slave with Christ than it is to be a free man in the world. Um, in Psalm 84, it says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in your house than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. And we see here the bond slave is nailed to the doorpost, which is kind of interesting when you think about it. If you think about in Exodus, what, what happened when uh, the Passover happened? What did God say to do? He said to take the blood and put it on the doorpost, right? Which is a picture of the sacrificial lamb dying for the sins of the world. Interesting that the very doorpost, you know, hypothetically, that the blood was covering was then what the slave would be nailed to. I find that really interesting. There's just a lot of different types here as we study through. Uh, if you could put up the verse, uh, Psalm 40, verse 6 through 8, Don. It says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. And in the Hebrew, it literally means, Ears you have dug for me which is an obvious picture of the idea of this all going into somebody's ear, into the door, right? Um, Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. We saw that in Deuteronomy 6, um, where he said that you shall... um, the, the things I command you today shall be on your heart. It's in, what's interesting about that is, if you, Don, if you go back to the verse before, Jeremiah 31, verse 33, it talks about the new covenant. It's amazing. I think it actually talks about the new covenant more in the old covenant than it does in the new covenant. Does that make sense? The New Testament talks more about, uh, I'm sorry, the Old Testament talks more about the new covenant than I think the New Testament does, at least by name. You know, Jesus talks about the new covenant when he's instituting it, but you don't see that term very often once it's been instituted. But this is a prophet, Jeremiah, speaking, and it says, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. So what I find interesting about this is, does the law still exist? Right? Jesus said, I didn't abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. So how is he putting God's law in our minds and writing it in our hearts? It's by the indwelling of Jesus' spirit, right? The Holy Spirit, I'm sorry. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Isn't that awesome? What's cool is that Hebrews talks about, uh, if you would, uh, I'm not going to make you turn there, but in Hebrews, when it's talking about Jesus, Hebrews chapter 10 quotes that Psalm 40 about the sacrifice and offering you don't desire. 
And but but the author of the new you know the book of Hebrews is using the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. Lots of information, I apologize. So the translation is a little bit different than when we read the Old Testament taken from the Hebrew. It says uh, in verse 5 of chapter 10 of Hebrews, if you wanted to take notes, you could put that down. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And he goes on and says, um, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings... He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So what is the author of Hebrews saying? He's saying that by the body of Christ being offered, we are sanctified, not by the law. But I find it really interesting that it's the verse that we see as the ears being opened and becoming that slave, right? is the verse in Hebrews that is translated, but a body you have prepared for me, which seems totally different, right? Until you look at what Jesus really did. In Philippians 2.5, you guys know the verse, where it says that he became, he humiliated himself by coming down in the form of God and becoming in the likeness of men. It says, um, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who thought he was in the form, or sorry, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a Greek word, slave. It says servant in your Bible because I think they don't like to equate Christ with slavery. But the literal word is bond slave. Jesus became the bond slave. And I find it really interesting that as the bond slave is pierced to the doorpost, Jesus was pierced on the cross. And he calls us to be that servant that loves the master so much that we're willing to forgo the freedom that's available to us in the world to stay, in a sense, shackled to Christ. Is that weird? I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm the only one who thinks it is. I find it interesting because oftentimes when we talk about Christianity, or I shouldn't say when we talk about it, uh, when other people, you know, the people that are all of a sudden experts about what the Bible does and doesn't say when it fits their agenda, um, they, they often will say, Christianity is such a trip. You know, it's all about God's just a big thou shalt not and all that stuff. And you have to give up so much. But when we become a new creation, we understand that what we're giving up is the very thing that is keeping us from being well off. Does that mean, as the Bible said, it's the thing that's keeping us from enjoying God the way he intends for all humanity to enjoy him. I think it's the, the Westminster uh, Confession says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. John Piper says in the book Desiring God, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And you guys know the famous quote, it says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The slave was satisfied. He was out there in poverty, couldn't do anything. And he came to the master. The master gave him a wife. He has children. He has food, shelter, clothes, all the things that he didn't have on his own. Uh, And he's like, I'm going to stay here. Even though he's, in a sense, staying in this accountability scenario where he's forgoing freedom. And he's becoming a slave. So when people say God endorses slavery in the Bible, you know what I would say to them is, yeah, he does. And praise God, because I'm a slave of Christ. 
So, um, anyway, let's move on a little bit. We'll probably won't get to anywhere past, uh, anywhere near chapter 22 tonight, but that's okay. Um, but uh, I hope you guys, I hope you were able to track with that, because I tend to just kind of run amok with verses and stuff. But um, let's move down to verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, oh, here we go, <laughs> she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, okay, that gives us a little bit of insight, then he shall let her be redeemed. So essentially, if the man had a debt, he had the option of saying, instead of me trying to find a husband for my daughter, I'm going to give my daughter to you. You can do, you know, you can either, if he's a single guy, you can, you know, here, instead of doing the dowry and having like the bride price and all that stuff, let's just call it even. Instead of you, because typically what would happen is the, uh, I always forget, was it the, the father would pay the dowry or the new husband would pay the dowry? I always forget how that worked out. But there was usually an exchanging of money in addition to the, the bride being exchanged and given over to the, the spouse. So essentially they're saying, we're not going to do that. We're just going to, you know, we're going to wipe the slates clean and you can have my daughter is essentially what it, that's why it says she won't go out as the men do because the intention of giving the daughter was for marriage. It wasn't for being a slave. Does that make sense? Um, it was either for the man or for the man's son, as we'll see. So it's important that we understand some of these things. Um, but it says if, if he doesn't want her as a wife, you know, and she's just serving in the house until she's of age to become a wife or whatever the situation may be, then the father could actually redeem her back. You know, so she has the opportunity to be free again. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people. Okay, that's important to note. He can't just say, I have no need of you. I'm going to sell you to these other people over here. You know, it's like a right of, ref- right of first refusal clause or something like that, where the father's like, no, uh-uh, don't sell, don't sell him to the Amalekites. I'll buy her back, you know. Um, if he takes another wife, I'm sorry, if he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. So if he purchases this girl, which you're like, oh, that's so weird. And it is obviously antiquity we're talking about here. This is a different time, different society. If the reason he purchased this girl was for his son, then he is actually obligated by the law to treat her as his daughter. So it's not like, hey, slave, go do that. Like he's, it's now his daughter in a sense, even if they're not technically married yet because they're not of age to get married. If he takes another wife to himself, so if, it would, if the exchange was for him to have a wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. So up to this point in society, what would happen is, uh, you're not cool, I don't like you, you burnt the toast, I'm going to divorce you and get a better wife that makes good toast. Um, and then that woman was just left, like nobody would marry her if she had already been married, you know, and she would be in poverty. So Rather than looking at this as God endorsing this type of thing, what God is trying to protect people from mankind <laughs> because God knows what's in the heart of man. So he knows that men and women are always going to try to work an angle, always going to try to cheat one another out of something. So God is actually putting up restrictions to say, you can't abuse these rights, which oftentimes is misinterpreted, unfortunately. Verse 11, and if he does not do these things for her, he sh- she shall go out for nothing, meaning she doesn't have to pay anything to leave, or no one has to buy her back. If the man does not fulfill his obligation as a husband to her, she gets to go away without payment of money. Um, and we trans- transition, we're going to start talking about life and death here. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. It's plain and simple, right? 
Don't kill people unless you want to be killed. Um, I, you know, it was neat and clean. Maybe it wasn't, but hey, I think it, it probably deterred a lot of murders. I'll just put it that way. If someone knew that they were going to immediately put to, be put to death for some, killing somebody else. Uh, but if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee, which is kind of a weird spot. You're like, what do you mean God let him fall into his hand? Well, you have to understand that God's sovereign. So, and in other texts, it kind of elaborates on this. It talks about a man who's chopping wood and the axe head flies off and kills somebody. You know, essentially God was sovereign and those things happen by accident, right? So the man didn't commit intentional murder. It wasn't first degree premeditated murder. So that's how they understood. It's like, well, God let this happen. You know, we don't know why, but he did. And he says, I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. And in Numbers 35, 25, um, or Numbers 35 in general, talks about the cities of refuge, which is something that God ordained for anybody who kills somebody by accident or, or they get into a heated argument and they push each other and the guy falls and bangs his head and dies. You know, those types of things happen. And, uh, you know, it wasn't an intentional, I sought to kill you, it was an accident. But there was this thing about the kins, you know, kinsfolk, would have the right to avenge the blood of their deceased uh, relative. So the man would flee to this city of refuge. And God set it up in Numbers 35 and, and, and also talks about it in Deuteronomy 19. But what's really interesting is this verse in verse 25. It says, So the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood. So just to give you a brief picture, the man would flee to this city of refuge he would plead his case to before the congregation and the judges of that town. Please grant me refuge because the slayer, I'm sorry, the avenger of blood is coming to get me because I accidentally killed his brother. So they would judge and say, yeah, okay, you can come into these walls. And the congregation shall return him to the city of refuge where he had fled. And he shall remain there until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil, which is a cool picture. We don't have time to get into it. Um, talked about this briefly back in Genesis when we talked about Hebron. I think it was like Genesis 15 or something. You can go back and listen to the the sermons in Genesis. But we talked about Hebron and being a city of refuge and what that means. But there's a a really cool type, and I encourage you to look into it on your own time, about Jesus being our refuge, as it says in the book of Hebrews, running into him as the refuge from the avenger of blood, essentially. You know, we're all we all sin, fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. The idea of our mistakes hunting us down someday, our sin finding us out, if we run to Christ as our refuge, we are safe. And what's even cooler is that it says that you're safe until the... And what would happen is once the high priest that was in power or was you know in place uh, when this event happened, when he died, you were then free. The avenger of blood didn't have any hold on you anymore. Isn't that interesting? So when the high priest dies, the high priest that was anointed with the holy oil, when he dies, the man who had been seeking refuge in this city was now free, a free man. So that's another type of Christ, obviously. We look at the book of Hebrews. There's so much that, that's why we're only through a few verses here in Exodus. There's so much if you, if you study and if you read. Um, man, oh man, like I just... I'm a glutton for mind punishment, I guess, because it just starts to pack, and everybody always laughs at me because I'm like, before I teach you, I was downstairs, and I'm just like, like, there's just so much information, and I apologize if it's just coming out like vomit, but it's just, it's, 
I get so excited. I get so fired up because when I hear people say things like, oh, the Bible's an irrelevant book, or the Bible was written by people thousands of years ago, I go, no! And I get so fired up. I should have done a disclaimer before I started talking about, I might get a little fiery tonight because I get so passionate, especially when unbelievers start to quote the Bible to a believer. It's like, oh no, you didn't. (laughs) You know, the, the word of God that lives inside of us, Jesus Christ starts to waken up in me. And when people start to challenge God's law, God's word, There's a righteous indignation. Now, it's not an anger of, how dare you, I will slay you, which is sometimes, or picketing with signs saying, God hates blank, God hates this, God, no. But there is a way to confound the arguments. You know, we talk about that in 1 Corinthians, about the wisdom of this world being confounded by Jesus Christ, who became wisdom for us. uh, 1 Corinthians one thirty, I think, says that. So, I encourage you, and anytime I, I teach, I, I just want to encourage people, like, we have to become students of the word. We have to, especially in times like this, because every, I've never lived in a time where every single day I saw someone challenging the authority of God's word. I wake up and it's smacked in my face, and my wife is never happy because I always check my phone when I wake up. Everybody does that, right? And I get so angry immediately. I'm like, oh, I should probably read the Bible first. And then I'll be like, okay, good. But then it makes me want to read the Bible all the harder because I want to be like, I want to disprove that argument. You know, like, what are they saying? But, you know, a lot of people are going to tell you, like, this stuff, Exodus, eh, law of God, what is this? But as you read it, man, it comes alive to you. Even as now I'm talking about it, you know, like, it, it awakens in me something that I forget exists sometimes, to be honest with you. I forget how alive I am in Christ. But when I'm reading the word that he authored and the spirit, his spirit is in me saying, yes, affirming, saying yes and amen to me. The promises of God coming forward and God saying, I'm not telling you what not to do. I'm telling you, it's the how-to manual to get me in all my glory to be a part of your life forever. So when we look at the law, we have to look at it differently than than we've maybe been raised to look at it. It can't be the thou shalt not book. It has to be the how-to manual on how to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's essentially what it is. So let's just finish up. Um, Let's see. We'll finish up with the killing stuff, I guess. (laughs) Uh, Verse 15. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Sorry, Leland and Jesse. Um, Those are my kids, by the way. (laughs) I don't know if you don't know that. They have occasionally, uh, I'll say they accidentally have thrown their hands in our direction in anger. (laughs) Um, Whoever steals a man and sells him. Okay, here we're talking about that kind of slavery now. And anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Uh, The Bible endorses slavery. No, it really doesn't. Not the slavery that you're talking about. It's talking about an economical structure that had to do with that place, that time, and God was restricting how it could be abused or how it should not be used. So when we see this, it's very important that we point that out. Of course, most people, when they bring that up, aren't looking for you to rebut that argument. They're just like, they like to throw those bombs at you, but it's okay. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. And that's another verse that people like to attack and say, if Christians had their way, all the kids would be murdered because they would say something to their parents. Well, if you would turn, and I apologize, this is going to be the last time we turn. 
Deuteronomy again, 21, and we'll wrap up here. Is that like the fourth time I've said that? No, it's okay. We got late start. It's okay. Um, Deuteronomy 21 elaborates again on this idea of the son or the child cursing their parents. But, you know, again, we got to, when we read the Bible, oftentimes things are said and said again, and we're like, why are they saying this again? But if we look closely, like as Chris said about the Gospels, it's so true. You're like, is this contradictory? It's not exact. But when you read all of them, all of the accounts, all of the narratives, you're like, wow, okay, way more detail when you start to put them all together, as opposed to like one sentence here, a sentence here. Um, Verse 18 of Deuteronomy 21 says, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. So it's not the parents just saying, you curse me, boom, dead. They are required to bring them to the court, essentially. Like, it's not like they just have just duty to just kill everybody, you know, like, because it needs to be heard. The case needs to be heard by impartial judges. And they shall say to the elders of his city, this, our stubborn, this, our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. What does this say? He is a glutton and a drunkard. Does anybody have a five-year-old drunkard running around their house? No. In most cases, when you see a drunkard, You know, they're old enough to make their own decisions, right? Hopefully, you know, I mean, obviously there's some sad cases out there where where kids are getting a hold of stuff younger and younger. But in this society, when someone is a drunkard, essentially it's a grown man. And this is talking about a son who is a grown man. He's not honoring his father and his mother the way he was told to do. And he's not heeding any of the warnings. He is rebellious and drunk and a glutton. So... When we hear these things like, the Bible talks about killing your children, it's like, okay, well, let's get a full picture here, right? This is a grown man here that's behaving in this way. It's a little bit different scenario than we tend to picture when we hear these verses. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you know the difference. Uh, So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. We talked about the fear of the Lord uh, last week, about the intention of it, and why God wanted people to fear him but to come to draw close and press into that fear because that is where real love is found. Um, so when we go back to Exodus, um, I just want to end on a verse that doesn't result in someone dying, if that's all right. <laughs> um, uh, we're going to be here for some time. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, so when men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. So essentially what that's saying, it seems self-explanatory. We'll just end there in verse 18. But what he's saying here is it's the idea of workers' comp, essentially. <laughs> you hurt somebody, you didn't kill him. But he's out of work, he can't sow in his field, he can't reap the harvest, he can't do anything. So you are on the hook for that. And again, that seems pretty logical when you look at it in the light of the context of what we're talking about. Because 
God wanted to deter people from doing these things. The sad thing is that God knew the heart of man so well that he had to be so specific because there's always going to be somebody looking for loopholes, right? I do that. People are doing that right now. Well, when you read the Greek, what it really means is this, and it doesn't actually mean homosexual, and it becomes this whole thing, right? Because everybody's looking for a loophole. But the important thing is, is that God knows the heart of man, and he doesn't leave room for loopholes. So when we read things about don't give the pot that the mouse died in to your neighbor, you're like, what is that? It's because he knows that there's somebody who's malicious enough that hates their neighbor that when a mouse is found dead in the pot, they'll wash it out and hand it as a home, you know, a housewarming gift to their neighbor or something. You know, like that is what mankind is like apart from God. And that's why when, when it talks about slavery and like being out in the world, why would you want to be out in that world where God has to be so specific about his rules because mankind is so rebellious and running amok? I'd much rather be the bondservant that's underneath the covering, the safe house of the master, the master that bought me, but ultimately to give me true freedom. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the patience of these folks. And I pray, Lord, that that you would awaken in us uh, anything that may be flickering or any, any fire in us that is righteous, Lord, and, and the spirit that is inside of us would say, come awake and understand who we are and understand the power that is at our disposal and the truth that's in our hands and on our bookshelves and in our iPods and all these things that we have the word of the living God. And by your Holy Spirit, Lord, the word is written on our hearts and on our minds that we would awaken to that truth so that we are not afraid when people start to accuse you and to defraud the character of God. I thank you for your law, Lord. I thank you that you cared enough about us to try to protect us, even though we couldn't save us from ourselves, Lord. That you gave us arrows to Jesus. I thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.